Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wise, the app that makes managing your money in different currencies easy. With Wise, you can send and spend money internationally at the mid-market exchange rate. No guesswork and no hidden fees. Learn more about how Wise could work for you at wise.com. Today on The State of the World, an explosion at a hospital in Gaza and making sense of life in the aftermath of Hamas's attack. Thanks for listening to State of the World from NPR, where we bring you the day's most vital international stories, up close, where they're happening. It's Tuesday, October 17th. I'm Greg Dixon. An explosion at a crowded hospital in Gaza may become a major turning point in that conflict. Thousands were being treated or seeking shelter in the hospital. Hamas-affiliated health officials in Gaza say many hundreds of people were killed in the blast. The Israeli army is saying the explosion is the result of a rocket misfire from another Palestinian militant group in Gaza. This will likely be one of the deadliest single days in all five wars Hamas and Israel have fought in the last couple decades. And President Biden plans to visit Israel tomorrow. NPR's Daniel Estrin spoke with Ari Shapiro about the day's developments. Daniel, update us on what happened at this hospital in Gaza. It took place um, on the Al-Ahli Hospital. This is a hospital in Gaza City. It's a Christian-affiliated hospital, Ari. It's where eyewitnesses told us that thousands of Palestinians have been sheltering uh, because hospitals have uh, long been considered off-limits for military targets in Gaza. People feel safe uh, sheltering there. But videos on social media uh, are showing a massive wall of fire rising up, uh, bodies strewn over the grass of the hospital grounds. An eyewitness spoke to Al Jazeera and said men, women, children were among the victims. Now, the Israeli military is saying that according to its intelligence sources, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group, that's a, it's another militant group, it's, it's a slightly smaller than Hamas, uh, operates in Gaza. They're saying that that group misfired a rocket barrage as it was firing toward Israel and, and that it hit the hospital. Uh, we do know from past wars there have been Palestinian rockets that have fallen short inside Gaza. Uh, but, you know, this very same hospital said it was struck by Israeli rocket fire just a few days ago. And even before for this massive explosion at the hospital, bombings have been going on all day. I know you've been reporting on this with our colleagues in Gaza who are working under extreme conditions. Tell us about what you two have been discussing today. Yeah, and I've been speaking with our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, all day, and he told me what he saw in very graphic detail. His morning began at 4.30 a.m. He woke up in southern Gaza to the sound of an Israeli airstrike that reportedly killed a family. We woke up to the, uh, to the explosion, and after that, we couldn't uh, get back to sleep. At 8.30 a.m., Baba and his family fled the home they'd been sheltering in because a nearby high-rise got an Israeli military warning to escape ahead of a bombing. His family went to go stay with relatives, and he went out to report. We reached the first family house that got bombed. We were informed that at least seven people died here. Everything in the house was flattened to the ground. A lot of the neighbors were just like still under the shot. He says there is no help to dig out the rubble. He said the family must have kept chickens because there were a lot of feathers in the rubble. And, and he smelled burnt blood. Smelled just burnt blood. He visited a second bombed house and then a third. And he saw a woman in the street screaming, I need a ride to the hospital. She had an injured son there. So he drove her to the hospital. Her name is Um Ali Abu Jazar. And she said, 
We were sitting at home normally, cooking. Suddenly the window broke on my head in an airstrike. My daughter, I found her face all bloodied. Under her room. All the kids were playing there. All the kids. They're all under the rubble. We don't know who's come out alive, who's come out dead, who is in body parts. Their blood is all black in every spot. The smell of death is everywhere. The smell of death is everywhere. So he arrives at the hospital and he finds another woman whose father was killed in one of those bombings. And he filmed her. You see her crouched on the floor. Her hand is on her father's body. And then suddenly... A huge explosion. An explosion. All of the hospital started to scream together, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. God is greatest, God is greatest. So he gets into the car to see what happened, and he's driving behind the ambulances. A huge dust. It's like a cloud of dust all over two blocks. We were driving without understanding where we're going. The only thing indicating to us where to go is the red color of the ambulance siren. We were following him. He drove guided by the red sirens. The first thing I saw, a man is driving and another man behind him, holding two girls. And I swear, they were beheaded, without a head. I get closer to find a woman with a full, fully dust and sandy clothing that you cannot even see her. She was like a ghost, with all gray dust, like covering her, her face, her skin. Everything. Screaming in the, in the street. They called the children. They called the children. He says he saw the bodies of children being carried out. He saw a baby girl crushed. There is nothing of her bone structure totally crushed. Gaza health officials are saying that more than 100 people were killed in just those few bombings. And they took place in southern Gaza, which is the area that Israel ordered Palestinians to flee to for their own safety. There was one moment today when Anas Baba was in the field and rescue workers called him over to try to help them lift a large concrete block. We just helped each other. Maybe the one under the rubble is still alive and we can save him. But underneath was just more rubble. Daniel is still here with us in Tel Aviv with that powerful reporting uh, about strikes in southern Gaza. And of course, we're looking at this explosion at this hospital in northern Gaza. This explosion at the hospital tonight could be a turning point in the war. Daniel, how so? Well, it's already disrupting President Biden's visit tomorrow. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has announced that he's going to boycott that meeting with Biden in protest of this explosion at the hospital. Uh, We're already seeing protests in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. There are reports of protests in Jordan near the Israeli embassy. Uh, Israel is calling on its own citizens to immediately leave Turkey due to threats. And then today we saw more cross-border fire between Lebanon and Israel. Uh, Israeli civilians have evacuated their homes on the border. Of course, all of this is Israelis are still identifying their dead, mourning, grieving, uh, burying their dead from the initial Hamas attacks. And so, Ari, uh, this is confirming the the fears that U.S. and Israeli officials have had all throughout this war, that this Hamas-Israel conflict could expand into a wider regional war. 
That's NPR's Daniel Estrin with me here in Tel Aviv, Israel, bringing us reporting from our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba. Daniel, thank you so much. You're welcome, Ari. Even as Israel strikes Gaza in response to the attack perpetrated by Hamas, many in Israel are still grappling with what and who they've lost and what it means. Here's NPR's Leila Fadel. On the road in Tiberi, an Israeli community about three miles from Gaza, I see a backhoe picking up bodies. They're the bodies of Hamas gunmen who stormed this community of just over a thousand people last Saturday. So we're walking into the kibbutz now, and I see a burned-out vehicle, the gate burned, and chickens. This vehicle was caught on camera. They came, they shot out the windows of the vehicle, assassinated the people inside, and then they blew open the door here, the gate. They came right in. That's Major Daron Spielman, a spokesperson for the Israeli army. He's taking media through Beirut on this day to give the world a glimpse of what happened once Hamas militants crossed the border from Gaza into Israel undetected, storming communities, entering homes, killing at least 1,400 people and taking at least 150 hostages. So when we walked in, it looked like a very sort of manicured community with small houses and now utter destruction. Homes are burned. Terracotta roofs lay in shambles on the floor. There's just these gaping holes in the side of the house. Inside one, there are portraits of the family who once lived there. Blood is spattered on the wall, on the front step, and in the bedrooms. Oh, it smells horrible in here. I walk into another house. There are two children's rooms filled with books, stuffed animals, and paint supplies. And the mattress is covered with blood. It's eerily quiet. The residents who lived here were killed or evacuated. A few blocks down, I find the abandoned home of one of those evacuees. The front door is burned but closed. The grass has patches of black from where it was burned, and it's the back of the house that's totally destroyed. As I walk the grounds, I call down Alam. That day, he was at his parents' home visiting. Can you tell me what happened, what I'm looking at? Because I see such destruction in front of me. Saturday uh, morning, they just started shooting missiles. We wasn't scared because we were used to it. Then we started hearing, like, guns shooting. They said, everyone, they go to the safe room now and lock the doors. So we just been locked there. No electricity, no water for, like, 15 hours. Wait, nobody came to help you for 15 hours? Yeah, and they were inside our house. The terrorists, they were screaming and shouting. There was guns shooting all around and trying to open up the door. We just held it strong. We didn't let them. We started to hear the house burning. We were calling for help. And we talked with our brother. He said, yeah, we're on our way, we're on our way. And they didn't come. So what I'm looking at, all of this, like your walls are black, that's because somebody set them on fire? Uh, yes. When he finally emerged from the safe room with his family, the scene was unlike anything he'd seen before. It was like an apocalypse, like everything ruined, like with bodies lay around. You saw the bodies everywhere? I'll, I'll, I'll try not to, but yeah. How many people did you lose? Uh, in your community? 
I think it's more than 100. Like the house in front of us, close friend. The father has been murdered for sure. The two biggest children and the mother. I, I, I just don't feel anything anymore, but it's like devastating. I'm sorry. I'm looking yes. at your neighborhood and I, I can't imagine. So you survived this. Yes, not a lot of our neighborhood survived. Has your community been able to bury their lost loved ones? Not yet. Really? Why? Because we're just still trying to figure it out how we're going to deal with so much funerals and we don't know where to bury them because it's not safe. They can't return home right now. And the 23-year-old is particularly worried about two friends, siblings. He was their camp counselor. One is 16, the other 13. He thinks they may have been taken hostage. We don't want to say their names because we, we don't know for sure, like, where are they? Who do you blame for this? I'm just not there at the moment. I'm just grieving for my, my friends, my, my parents' friends, my, like, my community. So... We just don't know like how to deal with it, but we just know we like we just been slaughtered and nobody came to help us. And I don't know whose whose fault it is, but just know like we've been slaughtered. I'm so sorry. Yes, I hope like that they will save all the ones who've been taken by the Hamas to Gaza. Just I'm asking them for just think about them and trying to get them back. I mean, how do you feel about the war? I mean, I know you have friends that might be in there. Yes, I'm worried about them. And after they will be home, I don't care what happens with Gaza. I really don't. You don't care? I don't care. Shoot them all. I don't care. Hmm. I don't care. That right there is a sentiment I've heard repeatedly from grieving, traumatized Israelis. Shoot them all. Eliminate Gaza. Erase it. And off in the distance, where plumes of black smoke are rising out of Gaza, Israel is retaliating hard. Israel's government has vowed to take out Hamas and is expanding its military campaign in Gaza just a few miles away. It's under siege, civilians are trapped inside, neighborhood blocks are reduced to rubble. And access to the devastation in Gaza is harder to recount with so few journalists inside. The borders are sealed. It's not the kind of response Noe Katzman wants, even though they, like Don Alam, have lost so much. Their brother was killed in the attack in a different community. When I return from Berry, I meet them in a cafe in Jerusalem before the start of the Jewish morning ritual. Um, it's tough days. I'm in, uh, we're sitting here, Shiva, you know, it's seven days after the funeral. Yeah. In Judaism, where you sit and you, like, everyone comes and shares our condolences. Their brother's name? Chaim, which means life in Hebrew. Beautiful. Yes. Chaim Katzman was one of 30 Americans killed in the attack. When Hamas gunmen stormed into the community, he hid in a safe room in his home in Cholit, about a mile from the Gaza border, with his neighbor and her two children. And uh, the terrorists came and they bombed the door. Chaim was hiding in the closet when they shot him. And finally, um, like... At 2 a.m. or something, they found his body, and then they called me and told me. In life, Chaim Katzman was a peace activist. If your brother were alive, what would he want? 
to happen in his name, if he had a say in what would happen in the reaction to his killing? Um, I'm sure he would say that we should never kill innocent people. I, I'm sure he would have called them to stop. I mean, I just don't understand who this helps. It just helps the government maybe to, that the people will think they do something, but it doesn't help the people. <laughs> I mean, does it make me feel better that so many Palestinians are killed in Gaza? No. Who do you blame for what happened to your brother? I don't blame anyone, but um, I do have expectations from my country. And my basic expectation from my government is to give security and safety to all of the people. And uh, they for sure fail for that. And my government, instead of saying, okay, we failed, maybe we need to do something else, they're saying, oh, we need to kill more Palestinians. We need to... Now we're going to really destroy the Hamas. Like, like <laughs> I'm just 27, and I remember them saying it so many times. So, of course, there's a revenge and a good feeling. They killed us, we killed them. But what about our safety? I mean, my brother isn't safe for sure. And why do you feel like it's important to talk about this publicly? Well, I just believe that the majority of people in Israel and Palestine um, lose from this situation. What does it mean winning now after my brother and a thousand people are dead? We want safety. There's a very small amount of people that earn from this situation. If it's uh, right-wing politicians who gain uh, power from violence and hate. When you say you want something different, you want safety, what would that look like when you think about the reaction you wish happened for your brother? Well, my brother wrote that he, in his doctorate that he wants justice and security for everyone who lives between the Jordan and the sea. Managing the conflict doesn't work. Every time there's a different terror attack, that's what happens when you manage a conflict. I'm sorry to tell you. And you need basic understanding of how people feel. And if after they kill us a thousand people, we're going to kill them 3,000, that's not understanding of people because these people will throw up and hate us even more. As Katzman speaks in this open-air cafe, people begin to stare. I'm a little afraid people are looking at me and I'm afraid they didn't play goodies. Then the waitress walks up to our table. What, what is this interview for? Oh, interview for NPR. Okay. Is it like pro um, Israel? It's pro-life and my brother died on Saturday. And he was a peace activist and I'm talking in his name. That's, that's a problem. Israelis only care if something is pro-Palestinian or pro-Israel. It's a symbolic. We don't care about the safety of our lives. We don't care about people who are getting killed in thousands. We only care if it's pro-Palestinian or pro-Israel. Who cares? All of this question is a distraction if it's pro-Palestinian or pro-Israel. People die. People die from both sides. That's that we're going to kill 3,000 Palestinians, so that's pro-Israel now? No, of course not. See, Noy Katzman tells me, violence emboldens extremism in their society and among Palestinians. It's a cycle that needs to break. They say goodbye, and they head home to mourn with their family. That's the State of the World from NPR. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns & Foster. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted for irresistible comfort with indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for your most comfortable sleep. Learn more at stearnsandfoster.com.